0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The riveting story today of a Vietnamese girl, just 12 years old, who fled communism on foot.
1: And I lost my shoes, my sandals, and I continued to run bare feet through the jungles of Cambodia. And my soles were shredded until now. They are not the same. Fast forward, my husband teased me when he saw every night I was giving love to my feet. <laughs> and he joked one day, he said, you know, I know you keep putting cream on your feet. And you might just like to embrace your pain, your scar."
0: Nee Ehrenheim lives in Englewood and has a new memoir, Souls of a Survivor. And while it's filled with the horrors of war, she says it's fundamentally a story of gratitude.
2: Support for Colorado Public Radio comes in all shapes and sizes. You might give monthly as an Evergreen member or contribute during fund drives. Maybe you donated your car or gave a gift of stock. For all the ways you support CPR, thank you so much. Your generosity is deeply appreciated. Thank you for bringing trustworthy news and timeless music to listeners across Colorado. Explore all the ways to give on the support page at CPR.org.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. A refugee story today. Our guest, Nhi Arenheim of Englewood, has navigated between two families and two cultures, and from fear to gratitude. Ehrenheim was born in Vietnam, where her dad was a successful doctor. But when the communists won the war and the U.S. retreated, the family's fortunes changed. Ehrenheim was still a child when she fled, often alone, through the jungles of Southeast Asia, and finally, to a new home in the United States. Her book is called Souls of a Survivor, Souls Like Shoes, which she'll explain in a little bit. Nee, thank you so much for being with us.
1: Thanks for having me here as your guest.
0: This is a difficult story. I mean, as we're going to hear, before you were a teenager, you'd survived enormous trauma, physical and mental, But your early childhood, as you write about it, was fairly pleasant. Will you describe that for me, the sights and sounds when you were a little girl?
1: About my childhood in Vietnam. Yeah. This is prior to the U.S. evacuated from Vietnam. My family actually had a pleasant life because my father was a physician working for the American military during the war. As the result of that, we had a very nice compound where the family had a beautiful home on the lake, pharmacy, medical practice on the compound. And bam, when the U.S. evacuated from Vietnam, just like the current situation with the Afghan refugees, we were left behind. Hmm. And my family was persecuted after.
0: I want to note that at the time... Polygamy was allowed, and your father had two distinct families, didn't he?
1: Correct. Prior to the communists taking over, the polygamy system was practiced in Vietnam, and it went way back to the fact that Vietnam used to have an emperor. And an emperor could have multiple wives and many concubines. And that's what you've watched on a lot of Chinese movies. Hmm. But yes, behind the scene, the polygamy system existed and my father had two official wives and different concubines or mistresses.
0: Was that difficult, in a way, sharing your father?
1: Yes, it was extremely difficult, and I think for both wives. Uh, It's never easy to share your father with another family.
0: So your father treated, among others, wounded American service members. The war ended, the communists take over, and your dad, having done that work, was sent to a re-education camp, and he came back after several years really a changed man. What was he like afterwards?
1: After the communists put my father in a re-education camp, which was very similar to being in prison, when the people would be abused physically, mentally, and emotionally. By the time he came home, and he got home early because his brother, who happened to work for the Communist Party, while my father was an an American ally, so the brothers were fighting against each other.
3: Hmm.
1: When my father was in the re-education camp, Uncle Knife who was a Communist Party member, put his name out there to get my father out of the camp. By the time he came home, he's no longer the father I knew. He became abusive toward his children and wife. And my mom did not want us to be in that kind of environment. And she told us that.
0: While you were still living in your hometown, Communist soldiers raided your house repeatedly, took the family's assets, and ultimately tried to move you all to a re-education camp yourselves. How did you avoid that?
1: When the communists took over our whole property, including the medical and pharmaceutical compound, my mother told us that once you get into the camp and get out, you will never be the same. mm mm-hmm. The Communist Party, we brainwashed everybody to make the children and the people think that Americans were terrible. They were our enemies for coming to our country and occupying Vietnam. My mother knew that's going to happen, which is similar to what happened to my father. She got us to escape the re-education camp On our route there, my mother bribed a bus driver to get us out.
0: Bribed a bus driver? Yes. I wonder what that conversation sounded like.
1: It was in the dark. It was at dinner time. She bribed the bus driver to not alert the other soldiers. She took all her five children, and we snuck into a different area on the street and we caught a merchant bus.
0: A merchant bus.
1: And we headed to the south of Vietnam, which is now Ho Chi Minh, but it was called Saigon.
0: Right, Ho Chi Minh City. I mean, that would have been just incredibly risky for her, no, and for you.
1: Yes, it was risky, but when you know the likelihood of what will happen to, to your own children, When you look at your husband who got out and was never the same, she took a chance.
0: You get to Saigon, again then, Ho Chi Minh City, now essentially on the run from the law. And you're able to find a place to stay, but there's really no source of income. So at the age of 10, you had to earn money to survive. What what all did you do?
1: We got to Saigon. We became an illegal immigrant because going from one town in Vietnam to another, you have to report to the government. And every movement was being monitored by the Communist Party. We had to live under the radar. No money, no clothes, no food. And we figured in order to survive, all five of us children, had to do whatever it would take to survive and put food on the table.
0: And what? remind me the age range of the kids.
1: I was 10. I was the youngest one. And then the next one was two years older than me. Basically, we were two years, one, two years apart.
0: Mm-hmm. And you had to become an entrepreneur in, in a way.
1: Yes. What I had to do was I would sell gasoline on the street to the motor vehicles. I would turned into a counterfeit cigarette dealer. I was a ticket scalp. My birth mother told my children recently, they wanted to make sure that the mama didn't make up stories in the book. <laughs> they asked in Vietnamese and they said, what did my mother do? And my birth mom said, your mom was a ticket scalp. They said, what do you mean? She my mom said, oh, your mom was just so tiny. She would crawl between people's legs just to get the, to the front of the line. She bought tickets, and then she went to the back of the line telling people, I can save you four hours waiting in line. I can sell you these tickets. That four, three, four times as much. And that's how I make money.
0: When you would sell gasoline, did you smell like gasoline?
1: Yes. I had to suck up the gasoline and get the flow going to put it into the liter bottles Mm -hmm. and I would sell them I mix different qualities of the gasoline into the container and sold them at a higher price yes I was terrible I lied I cheated so I could make money to put food on the table
0: Do you think that that has resulted in a certain resourcefulness for you today, albeit on the right side of the law?
1: (laughs) I, I learned and I knew at that young age that it was not the right things to do. And I had to make a decision whether I could survive doing that to survive or be there. So I had to learn to be creative, knowing that was wrong. But it taught me a lesson that I make a promise whenever I'm in a situation like I am now, I will never do that again. I will never lie and cheat the way I did.
0: Do you blame yourself or do you you give yourself the freedom of knowing that that is what you had to do?
1: For the longest time, I was ashamed of what I did. I never blame of what I did, but I was ashamed of what I had to do for survival. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: I now come to accept the fact that that was the situation I was in. And it was in a wet life and death situation.
0: You are in Ho Chi Minh City at that point, as we've said. Illegally, there's the constant danger of police raids. And there's an image from those days that comes up over and over again in your book. And it's your description of where you hid. Tell us about that.
1: In order for us to avoid the communist soldiers, just visualize this. Imagine you earn, you work so hard to earn a living. And suddenly the communist soldiers would come into your home and take over all your possession, all your belonging. the way they did when they took over my family compound. So here I was, being a counterfeit cigarette dealer, selling gasoline on the street to put food on the table. And the communists would come over. It can be at 2 in the morning. They would raid the home and take everything you have. And they said, what you have is now ours. At one point, my birth mother told us, you know, if you want to prevent them from taking all our possessions, the next time they get into our home, why don't one of you just jump into a toilet? And the toilet at my home is not the regular white toilet we have in this country. Mm -hmm. It was a huge rectangular hole above the sewage line. It was big enough to swallow the whole adult. And in order to avoid the communist soldiers from taking over our possession that we worked so hard to keep and make, elder sister and I would jump into the sewage with the cigarette, any belonging we had, and we held on to it.
0: Presumably to keep it clean, to keep it above the line of... Mm-hmm.
1: Yes, and we put all those belongings in a plastic bag. We jump in the sewage to protect it from getting soaked in sewage. That's when I told myself, I don't think I can live in this environment. This is from the lowest of the lowest that I could get to.
0: I wonder if that's a smell, a sensation that sticks with you and that... Can be triggered maybe by sense or or visuals.
1: I don't know what whether it was sense or what, but it impacted me so much that until this day, my home would have the nicest bathroom, <laughs> nicest toilet available. It impacts me that much.
0: You chose uh, the toilet, a fixture for your bathroom that would traumatize you the least upon seeing it. That's what I hear you saying. <laughs>
1: Yes, Uh the trauma was so bad that I made a promise one day. When I make a good living, I am going to spend my money on the bathroom.
0: Well, eventually your mother, and and you've been referring to her as your birth mother. We'll explore why that's the case in a bit. But uh, your mother decides that you kids need to get out. She'll stay behind, but she has big dreams for you and a life in America. What did she envision or imagine that that would be like for you?
1: What my mother envisioned is for her children to live in freedom. She told us, this is not the life we have, I want you to have. But I heard that America is the greatest country in the world. And if I can help you get to that place, whatever it takes, I will try my best to get you to America because America is a representation of humanity and love. That's what she told us.
0: Your older brother was the first one to leave. What happened to him?
1: My eldest brother, uh, who was 14 at the time when he escaped Vietnam, he escaped and we never heard from him again so he went missing
0: do you have theories about what happened
1: we think that he got killed in the ocean because a week after he escaped my mother heard that there was the greatest hurricane or storm in the southeast asian ocean and my mother's hair turned from black to pure white within a year
0: I can't imagine what the wound must feel like, of never knowing truly what occurred, never having a body. Um, does that still haunt you today?
1: I, when it comes to my missing brother, I suppressed my feeling for many, many years. I didn't deal with my feeling until I started writing the book, and I had to learn and face my past, I did a lot of crying while I wrote my book because I suddenly let my feeling come up to think about my brother because I had to, I wrote about him in my book.
0: Let's name your brother. I think we should say his name.
1: His name is Gu, and it's spelled C-U.
0: Your mother let you go, and how did you get out of Vietnam?
1: After my brother escaped, and we never heard from him. Then the next person who left was my eldest sister. Her name is Tung. She escaped Vietnam before me and she made it to Singapore. Now, a year later, my mother offered us an opportunity. They said, okay, I have three children left and I have money just to have enough to pay for one kid to escape Vietnam who wants to go. And my elder siblings said, hell no, we're not going. We saw what happened to the others. And I thought about it. By then I was 12. And I looked and I thought, I said, this is not the kind of life I want to live. I don't know what other countries are like. But in my heart, something told me that there must be a better place out there for me. So I told my mother, I said, okay, I will take a chance. I will go. And she asked me, do you know that we will never see each other again? Do you know you might die while you escape Vietnam? I told her, yes, but I'm willing to take the chance.
0: What a conversation to have with a 12-year-old me. My goodness. And what a thing for a 12-year-old mind to try to Embrace all of that.
1: When you have no other choice, feeling suppressed, living in that kind of environment, when the communists kept saying, you are not allowed to go to school because your father was an American ally. Now we don't let you go to school. We will take over your property whenever we feel like it. When you deal with that on a daily basis, that's when my heart told me I had to leave.
0: And this is where the title of your book comes in, Souls of a Survivor, Souls spelled like the bottoms of your feet. What does that refer to?
1: The reason I named it was because I escaped Vietnam for Cambodia, which was the jungle of Cambodia. And I eventually got to Thailand. So many people ask me, nee, why would you go cross to Cambodia, to Thailand at the time the US did not have an embassy in Vietnam or Cambodia. The closest embassy would be in Bangkok, Thailand. Mm -hmm. So we knew in order for me to have any contact with Americans, I had to escape to Cambodia by foot to eventually get to Thailand. And while I was in the Cambodian jungle, I faced danger and I just kept running in the jungle when I was being chased by the Cambodian soldiers.
0: And let's just say this is under the murdering dictator Pol Pot in Cambodia.
1: Correct. And when I was on the street of Saigon, I was told about Pol Pot and his soldiers, how they would just slaughter people and kill them. They were the ruthless, brutalist murderers. And I was in that jungle and I didn't know whether it was post-military guys. But I was being chased by them. And I knew if I didn't run, I could have gotten killed. So I was running for my life, for all of my might. And I lost my shoes, my sandals. And I continued to run bare feet through the jungles of Cambodia. Bare feet. <laughs> and my soles was shredded. Until now, they are not the same. And fast forward, my husband teased me when he saw every night I was giving love to my feet. <laughs> and he joked one day, he said, you know, I know you keep putting cream on your feet every night. And you might just like to embrace your pain, your scar. And he said, if one day, if you ever write a book, I would name your book Souls of a Survivor because it's a living proof of your past.
0: Wow. Oh, so the title was his suggestion.
1: Correct. It was a suggestion one night.
0: Now, you were escaping on foot with a a group headed all to Thailand uh, in hopes indeed of uh, getting to the United States from the Cambodian jungle. The group ends up on a small boat and gets stranded on an island. How, how did you get stranded?
1: The people, the leaders who took us out of Vietnam, they just wanted to get money, the second part of the deposit from my family. And they just wanted us to write a note to our beloved family back at home saying that we got to Thailand safely. And that's when my family would be able to pay them money. So in order to get that note, they just pushed us onto the, this island. And they said, okay, here you go. You're in Thailand. And we did not realize that we were not in the official Thailand. It was a deserted island.
0: Still in Cambodia.
1: Uh, we think it was in, I think it was in Thailand, but mm. it was not in the mainland.
0: So you were essentially deserted so that they could cash in quicker. Correct. I mean, this portion of the book reminds me a bit of what I imagine the start of Lord of the Flies would have looked like in real life. I mean, you're, you're trying to survive now, stranded on an island. Where do you find food? How do you survive?
1: There was no food on this deserted island. Uh, no waters. So we caught water from the rain. We walked into the jungle. And we found some coconut. We tried to smash the coconut open, drink coconut juice. And that's what kept us alive until we got rescued by a military ship.
0: And eventually uh, onto a refugee camp.
1: Correct. Uh,
0: Yeah. It's a hard story to wrap your mind around me, especially, you know, I just keep wanting to remind people that you're not even a teenager yet. You're 12 at this point. I wonder what nights were like. I mean, did you did you rock yourself? Did you cry yourself to sleep? Did you... What, where was there any source of solace at this time?
1: There was no crying, Ryan. When you're in the survival mode, you don't want to let your emotion take over. And was I scared? Absolutely, I was scared of having animals coming out to us at night to eat me alive. But... I didn't let that fear get over me. I kept saying, OK, let's pray to whoever it was out there that we would be rescued. And we later got fortunate.
0: Nee Ehrenheim of Englewood is with us. Her new memoir is called Souls of a Survivor. The final part of our conversation after a break at a refugee camp, she encounters both hope and horror, then comes to America and starts her own family a Jewish one. I'm Ryan Warner, and you're with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.
4: What caused the East Troublesome Fire? More than a year later, we still don't know. When it comes to finding out the cause of major human-caused wildfires, Colorado does worse than any other Western state.
5: You know, you kind of pull up, look at it, if it's not super obvious, and you know, yeah, I looked at it, but there's fires where, investigators I know, nobody ever showed up.
4: I'm Ben Marcus. Read this CPR News investigative report about the cost of unsolved megafires at CPR.org.
0: You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. This story is hard to wrap your mind around. At 10 years old, Nee Ehrenheim is largely fending for herself, scalping tickets and siphoning gasoline to make ends meet. She's keeping a low profile because her family assisted the United States during the Vietnam War, and when the U.S. withdraws, they are enemies of the state. At 12, Nhi flees Vietnam, crosses the Cambodian jungle, barefoot much of the time, to reach Thailand, only to be stranded on an island, abandoned by the people who were supposed to protect her. Eventually, she lands in a refugee camp. Your half-brother was there, and you say that he sexually abused you repeatedly. He is still alive. You've stayed in touch with some of his family members. I understand that he denies your claims to this day. Um, but this book, writing it, was really an opportunity to process a lot of what you went through. Was that true of what happened to you uh, at the hands of your half-brother?
1: Yes, uh, he molested me night after night because we all slept next to each other like fish on the floors. And there were about 200,000 refugees in the Panacnecom refugee at the time. And people were in survival mode. And when that happened to me, I was so stunned. I didn't know how to behave. I knew it was wrong. Mm -hmm. But I can tell you the molestation really affected me for many years. I went for counseling even when I wrote the book. For my entire book, I wrote it between midnight and 5 a.m. so that I could cry without my family seeing me doing that. Um, But I I dealt with it. And I am now fully healed. And I'm thankful that I'm healed.
0: I'm thankful to hear that. And I suppose at this point, it would be nice to talk about some of the inspirational folks you met along the way. There's a lot of hope in this book, and it is personified by heroes. The first, a woman you met at the refugee camp, a teacher. Uh, Tell us about her, how she helped you.
1: She, Bridget was the one who saw me having bruises on my face. And she asked me, and of course, I didn't understand English well at that time, who I was with. And I kept saying I was with some people whom I escaped Vietnam with. She could tell I was being abused. And she said, if you're by yourself, would you like to go to an orphanage? It's called Minor Center, uh, which was sponsored by UNICEF. Would you like me to help you get into this Minor Center?
0: Minor Center, got it. Yes.
1: Yes. And I took her advice, and I just went back to the building where my half-brother and his, uh, all the people stayed. I picked up my things, which were not much. And I followed this lady to the minor center to live with the other kids who escaped Vietnam with no parents.
0: Yeah, I mean, ultimately, you were able to do the paperwork, parentless at this point, uh, that you needed to get to the States. How were you able to come to the United States? I mean, I'm just sure there were thousands of people in that same camp who weren't able to come here.
1: Yes. In order for refugees to get qualification to immigrate to America, and in order for us to be qualified for refugee status, we have to have paperwork showing that we were politically persecuted. My birth mother sent me paperwork showing that my father was working for the american military Uh based on the paperwork it showed that we the family were persecuted and that's how i got qualified for refugee status to immigrate to america
0: well your sister who as we mentioned had managed to escape i think to malaysia she ends up in kentucky uh you arrive there your sister's 20 and she has extended family at her house 11 people in all. And so that is just not a good living situation. And this is where another person steps in and changes your life. And now in the United States, who's this?
1: So imagine I immigrated to America and I live with my eldest sister, who's now 20 years old, with three young children under the age of four. She has all the in-law family members living with her. Yes, 11 of us living in a tiny home, three bedrooms, one bath. And it was not an ideal situation.
3: Hmm.
1: And the person who came into my life and lifted me up was my high school teacher. And she saw me, she watched me, and she offered to help me and tutor me before and after school. And eventually she offered to become my legal guardian and she has three boys or sons of her own. And she and her husband took a chance on me, showing the humanity that this country has and I've had heard about even when I was in Vietnam. Yes, she showed me the humanity and love.
0: Did you believe it? Were you able to embrace it in the beginning or were you suspect?
1: I trusted her completely, but I was never comfortable to share with her about my past. Mm. I knew she is a kind-hearted person. She eventually became my mom, my adoptive mom.
0: You graduated from high school in three years, uh, went to college in Kentucky, and uh, eventually It's President Clinton who lifts the embargo on Vietnam. You were able to travel there with a school group and meet back up with your mother. Goodness, what, what was that moment like for you and for her?
1: After President Clinton lifted the embargo against Vietnam, yes, I was able to travel back to Vietnam with a group of college professors and students and entrepreneurs. That was the first time I got reunited with my family. And it was unbelievable. The emotion was I was on a roller coaster. I was happy to see my family and knew that the situation was better than when I escaped. At the same time, I felt so struggled when my birth mother now told me, I feel like I lost my child because you become so Americanized. (sighs) That was a hit on the face for me. I was so devastated.
0: That was her goal for you, I thought.
1: Yes. Her goal for me was to escape Vietnam for America, to have a better life. And I embraced America. And when the reality hit her, she realized that her daughter now becomes too Americanized. And she didn't like it. She wanted her own baby girl back Hmm. to be a traditional Vietnamese girl. And so that was a struggle for me.
0: After you graduated from college, you got a job with a major national corporation, Lucent. You were doing well financially, and you were able to take your American adoptive mother to Vietnam to meet your birth mom. Mm I mean, given what you just told us... That had to have been fraught as well, that encounter.
1: Yes, that was actually a really cool experience to bring my adopted mother to meet with my birth mother for the first time. Initially, there was so much warmth and my moms thank each other. They share how much they enjoy having me in their lives. And now another reality hit. My birth mother became jealous of my adopted mom. She realized I became closer and very open with my American mom and she wished she could have that. But in a way, you know, when you don't live with somebody for all these years, it's tough to become so bonded to the person like it was yesterday. And so once again, I have to deal with the internal conflict and the jealousy that my Vietnamese mom has.
0: Yeah, no, Chris I also just think of how much loss she has, that that is all a function of her loss, of you, of those years, of that time. Correct. As much as she may have saved your life and made it better. And where are your moms now?
1: My Vietnamese mom is now in California. She's 83 years old. This is the lady who wants to live by herself. She walks with a walker. She takes a public bus with a walker going to Huntington Beach and walk the beach every morning. Hmm. And she just doesn't want to live with anyone.
0: And what about your uh, adoptive mom?
1: My adopted mother is now living in Virginia. She moved from Kentucky to Virginia.
0: And you get to see her.
1: I see her regularly. We talk almost every day.
0: You traveled for your job and ultimately met your husband, Jeff, on an airplane, moved to Denver and married him. He is Jewish and you converted to Judaism. Why was that important to you?
1: So, yes, I met my husband on an airplane when I was on a business trip. He was actually the first Jewish man I've ever known. I probably met other Jewish people in my life and not realizing it. But Jeff was truly the first Jewish person I've ever known. And initially, I did not want to convert to Judaism because I just did not want to convert just for the heck of yet having a Jewish wedding. That's not me.
3: Hmm.
1: Conversion to any faith, in my opinion, is it has to come from the heart. And it took me four years to learn about Judaism before I was willing to convert. And he never, one cool thing is my husband never pressured me into converting. He said, I love you for who you are. Do it only if it means something to you. And when, after I learned about Judaism for four years, I said, okay, now Judaism means so much more to me and I'm going to convert.
0: What aspect of it do you think?
1: The aspect that I love about Judaism is is the people, the community, the culture And the other part I love is you are welcome to challenge your belief. That it's okay to challenge and to disagree among each other. And that's what I love.
0: Well, it occurs to me that community saved you in many ways. So it would be something you'd identify with. Yes. Before we go, you are a mom and... So much of this book is about your own relationship with your mother and your siblings. And it makes me wonder what awareness your kids have of your experience and if you've tried to use it as a way to mold them.
1: I think in regard to my children, what I like to see with them is to have the gratitude in their lives. Have gratitude for what you have. And I have a challenging time just for them to understand that we have so much, we have abundance in this country. But they told me one day, they said, mom, it's your fault. I said, what do you mean? It's my fault. (laughs) They said, you know, you work so hard as an immigrant. You come to this country, you build this life for us. Hmm. You want us to have a wonderful life and we do have it now. And you tell us that we are spoiled rotten Americans. Whose fault is that? It's you, it's not (laughs) us. So they shut me up nicely, okay? But the reality is I know they told me that they have so much gratitude for what we have, even though they might not show it. And I think that's why I wanted to share this book, Above and Beyond the Family, because I wanted folks to hear about the, have the gratitude for what we have and have tolerance about the the fact that people are different and you can embrace diversity. When you talk about diversity and inclusion, that's what my family truly em- embraces is we have it all. I have a Vietnamese family, a Christian family, and a Jewish family. And we deal with it and we embrace each other's differences. And that's what I want our country to have.
0: Nee, thank you so much for sharing the story, both on the page and with me here.
1: Thanks for having
0: me here, Ryan. Nee Ehrenheim of Englewood has written Souls of a Survivor, a memoir. Michelle P. Fulcher produced the interview. And this is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Colorado Wonders is a way we get to explore this state, answering your questions about this place we call home. As our show marks 20 years on the air, we're listening back to some of our favorite conversations like this one, sparked by
5: some Colorado Wonders queries. I'm Hank Troy, and I live in Denver, and I've been here for 50 years or more, and I've always wondered what the front range is. Is it a mountain range, or is it range like home on the range? Lauren Law of Evergreen is a more recent arrival. She too reached out through Colorado Wonders
0: about the term front range.
2: I hear the weatherman talking about it, weather women, and I just don't quite know where I live.
0: And judging by the responses I got on Twitter, there's not widespread agreement. I asked people to draw a map of what they think of as the front range. One person jokingly sent us photos of his stovetop, pointing to the front range. More serious replies included the urban corridor from Fort Collins to Pueblo. Others stopped at Colorado Springs. Some excluded the metros, designating a swath of mountain communities from Estes Park down to Woodland Park. I asked Lauren and Hank for their theories.
2: To me, being new to Colorado over the past four years, it seemed like it was just that front face of the mountains that you could first see when you were leaving Denver, more geographical.
0: Do you think in Evergreen that you live on, along, inside
2: the Front Range? I guess I have. I I think it sounds cool if you live in the Front Range. I kind of feel like I do.
0: Okay, you feel a part of the Front Range in Evergreen. Hank, you're in Denver.
5: I'm in Denver. Do you
0: feel like a Front Ranger? (laughs)
5: Not particularly.
0: (laughs) (laughs) How do you define the term for yourself?
5: Well, I keep hearing that it's all up and down the front range, so I'm imagining perhaps it's from Fort Collins down to Pueblo. I mean, is that the front range all the way up and down? I don't know.
0: Well, Lauren, Hank, I'd like you to meet Sam Bach, who is public historian here at History Colorado, where you've agreed to meet us. Hi, Sam. Hi, Ryan. And you have been doing some digging. I sure have. What did you find?
4: I found out that the front range, the geographical designation of the mountain range, is actually from about Laramie down to Colorado Springs. It doesn't usually include Pueblo. It ends right around the Pikes Peak group.
0: Laramie, Wyoming, down to Colorado Springs. And what do you base this on, Sam? So we base this on the records
4: of the U.S. Board on Geographic Names. This is the group that was founded in the 1890s to put names to things throughout the country the first use, the first official use that we could track down of the term front range was in the Hayden survey from 1873. 1873. Is the Hayden survey a kind of expedition? Yeah, this guy Ferdinand v Hayden led this expedition to Colorado in 1873 and They really were one of the first groups to come in and put official names on things that stuck. They decided that Front Range was descriptive. If you come from the East, it's the first range you come to. It's the Front Range. Now, this is interesting. On Twitter, there
0: was a lot of talk about the idea of the Front Range coming from an Eastern perspective. Mm -hmm. A lot of people on the Western Slope, who also think the West Slope is the best slope, don't love the idea of being thought of as the back range, for instance. Yeah, and I think that's a pretty common sentiment. Ari Armstrong of Westminster tweets, my father, who lives in Palisade, says the west side is the front range and Denver is on the back range. Nick Johnson points out, well, the first white immigrants came from the east, so eastern slope mountains of course became front. And Mark Cavanaugh adds that if you're from the Western Slope, the Front Range is that place that takes your water away and then takes it for granted. (laughs) Uh, Okay, so this expedition comes along and that's the first reference to the term. Yeah, and
4: they really use the term Front Range and Colorado Range interchangeably in their report. The official designation of Front Range as the name for the mountains that run from Laramie to Colorado Springs came in 1891 when the U.S. Board of Geographic Names decided that Front Range was more descriptive than Colorado Range. And so they officially designated it in that
0: year. Okay, so this is an official term. Mm-hmm. And does it include just the foothills or also the high mountains along that stretch? It includes
4: the Indian Peaks and Longs Peak. Those are the highest points in the the range it also includes pikes peak and the group of mountains that are down there if you get a little further to the west the mountains up by summit county those are in a whole different range
5: so sam we're talking mountain range here right we're not talking about the range like home on the range
4: that's right yeah it's really the geographical features the foothills and the mountains that make up this mountain
0: range i think it's fair to say that the meaning of front range has grown and sort of is molded like clay by each individual. Do you have that sense, Sam? You know,
4: I think there's a degree of that, but in the 1970s, you start seeing reporters, weather people referring to the communities, the cities along that range, that mountain range, as the Front Range. And so 1973, the U.S. Board on Geographic Names actually gets a letter from someone living in Denver asking, You know all these reporters and weather people are referring to this as the front range is that correct and the board says well technically the term refers just to the geographic features but you can use the term however you want and so since then it's really come into common use you know as individuals understand this region needs its own name
2: so that sounds awesome sam you have some sort of letters some documentation can we take a look at that
4: Yeah, so Mary Kidd of Golden wrote in to ask about this usage of the term front range to refer to the towns. And what she asks is, question about the location of the front range in Colorado. Is the location shown on your map correct? Route County is west of what is generally considered front range hereabouts. And the U.S. Board on Geographic Names writes back to her and says, in effect, yes, you are correct that the boundary of the Front Range really refers to the mountain ranges and not the communities around, and that it could be confusing to residents in the foothills west of Denver.
5: Yes, but in thinking about this, I can't imagine someone who lives around Indian Peaks or Longs Peak or in Nederland or Estes Park thinks of themselves as living on the Front Range. So to be extra clear, what is the northern, southern, eastern
0: and western boundaries of the Front Range?
4: Yeah, so the Front Range really technically extends from about Laramie in the north to about Canyon City in the south to around Idaho Springs or even Georgetown on the west, and then to Golden on the east.
0: Okay, Haley Littleton of Breckenridge got this spot on. She says, the western edge is Idaho Springs where the traffic starts, (laughs) and she's about right. Okay. You were raising your hands in joy, Lauren.
2: Well, because now I know I'm just probably eight miles past Evergreen towards Idaho Springs, and now I know I live on the Front Range.
0: You are a Front Ranger. Just to reflect on something Becky Boyle of Boulder told us on Twitter, in a way, this is also a cultural division. People thinking of themselves as being on the Front Range or perhaps the Western Slope. I I think, Sam. You can answer the geographic aspect of this as an open and shut case, but the identity part feels so much more squishy to me.
4: I think it's really up to each individual to decide whether they're from the Front Range or whether they're from somewhere else.
0: Public historian Sam Bach of History Colorado helping us answer Colorado Wonders questions about the Front Range from Lauren Law of Evergreen and Hank Troy of Denver. We spoke in 2020, and it's one of our favorite segments, as Colorado Matters marks two decades sharing stories from across the state. What makes you wonder in Colorado? Let us know at cpr.org slash Colorado Wonders. I'm Ryan Warner, and this is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.